Gracious God and Father, great is your faithfulness, and great are the works of your hand, the beauty and majesty of your creation, the sun, moon, and stars, the colors of the seasons, and we are filled with awe and gratitude because you also created us and you imprinted yourself on us. We thank you for this moment now, for this opportunity to be together and to worship you. We thank you for your compassion and kindness and for the generosity with which you loved us. And we see that through your son, Jesus. We know that by your spirit. We lift up our ministry partners, KP and Courtney Patel and Robert Sonda. Grant them strength and wisdom as they follow and serve you. Fill them with your truth and love as they share the hope of Christ. We pray for safety and protection for them and their families. And Father, we entrust them to you and thank you for how you are working in and through them. Father, we pray for our church family now, for the many needs that we learned about last week. We specifically come to you for our need for a women's pastor, and we look to you to bring the right person in the right time. Thank you for the many who are filling in the gaps. Grant them strength, grace, and joy. Be with our elders and give them wisdom and clarity. We pray for a spirit of unity and humility as they work together. Please show us how we can help. And now we lift our prayers to you for a moment. Father, help each of us to keep our eyes on you and to find peace and rest in you when we feel discouraged or afraid. And may your spirit help and comfort and encourage us during this time of change and uncertainty. Change is hard, Lord, um, but we do not need to fear and we do not need to be unsettled to the point where we despair. So we ask that you would fill us with an abundance of joy and grace and gratitude and peace and love. Help us to thrive during this time. Help us to be connected to one another more deeply. Father, we lift up those here today who are sick or struggling. Would you please be with them? Send your comfort and peace upon them, and may they know they are not alone. Father, give us eyes to see as you see, and hearts that beat with your heart. And as we abide in you, may we reflect your love and grace in our homes, neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. Be with Sean as he brings your word to us. May it deepen our faith and expand our love. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the Beatitudes, from Matthew chapter 5. The last two verses of this Beatitude are actually a double Beatitude and go with the text that Sean is going to share with us today. So hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Okay, I'd like to invite Sean up to share with us. All right, thank you, Denise, and good morning. I'd like to take a moment and just introduce my parents to you. My parents are out here visiting from Pennsylvania for the first time since before the pandemic. So we're thankful. <laughs> we're uh, thankful to have them with us. And I know my kids are thankful for grandma's whoopie pies. So there you go. If you don't know what that is, come talk to me afterwards. Well, we do return to our studies in the Gospel of John this morning. And here in the West, don't we like to be comfortable? <clears throat> I know I do. I like being comfortable. I don't like anyone or anything messing with my comfort. I think that's why the pandemic has been so hard for me. It's because it's messed with my comfort. Well, as we come to our text today in John, in this upper room discourse, we find Jesus describing life along his way as anything but comfortable. Life along his way, he says, will be characterized not by comfort, rather by being hated and being persecuted. Yikes. He says this is simply the cost of following him. One of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, thought long and hard about the cost of discipleship, even calling his study on the Sermon on the Mount that very name, the cost of discipleship. And he said this, he said, um, he described the cost this way, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. He would later say, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. It doesn't sound very inviting, does it? It sounds pretty discouraging. So how are we to face this suffering, this hate, this persecution? Answer, with the help of the paraclete, with the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus which you had John faithfully record for us. And so now as we open up this text and study it, we ask in your grace and mercy that you would enable your spirit to help us understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we talked last week, we are now in the back half of the sermon, I'm sorry, of the upper room discourse. 
In the first half, love was particularly a theme, especially between Jesus and his disciples. But now in the second half, hate emerges as a theme, especially from the world toward his disciples. So I invite you into our text this morning, beginning with uh, verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Well, two words particularly stand out from these verses, world and hate. And it's important to be reminded again what John means by world in this gospel. We talked about this in the early parts of John. I'm sure you don't remember it because that was a few years ago. But John 3, 16 and 17. You know, we all know John 3, 16, but 17 as well. Here Here are these two verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what John means by the word world in his gospel is this, human society organizing itself without God. That's the world in his gospel. World is human existence resisting, rejecting, and rebelling against the living God. And we've already seen an example of this in the upper room, haven't we? Judas rejected the love that Jesus showed him and rejected the service that Jesus showed him and he went out into the darkness of night. So if the world resists, rejects, and rebels against God, the world hates Jesus, who is God incarnate. The world hates Jesus and anything connected to Jesus' name. As we have said before, name in Scripture signifies character. So the world resists, rejects, and rebels against Jesus and everything the name of Jesus stands for, which means everyone that follows the Jesus way. And everyone who lives the character traits of Jesus. They will be hated by the world. I don't think I need to provide examples of this, but I think I've shared this before. When I was in college and undergrad at Penn State, I took a religious studies course, and it was a survey of world religions. And when, when we came to Christianity, which was last, uh, the professor wouldn't even teach it. He called up a student to teach it, and then he ridiculed and mocked the student along with all the other students in the class. Everyone who belongs to Jesus will be hated, just as Jesus was hated. 
Because the branch abides in the vine, branches will experience the same hate that the vine experiences. Plan on it, Jesus says. Just plan on it. You're not of the world. You've been chosen out of the world, and therefore you'll be hated. As Paul says in Corinthians, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Now notice the stark contrast here. The world will be known by their hatred of Jesus. The world lives and moves and has their being from within this context. On the other hand, Jesus' disciples will be known by their love. Jesus' disciples live and move and have their being from within the love of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And what this means is that the church and the world are driven by distinct loyalties, operating under different orders, acting from opposing values, and ultimately heading in opposite directions. The world and Jesus' disciples are polar opposites. Now, this is certainly not a cause for arrogance or self-glorification, and we certainly should not go looking for hatred or persecution. This is simply a recognition that God has revealed himself through Jesus. And anything which cannot be reconciled with this truth is an error. It's simply the narrow way of Jesus. By saying Jesus is Lord of my life, by definition means I will be at odds with the world. And yet in the world, the call to conform is so strong. It's so easy in our world to be conformed to the attitudes of the world, to the values of the world instead of to Jesus. This is why Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Be squeezed into the Jesus mold. Os Guinness once said, in the modern world, most Christians look no different than their pagan neighbors. May that not be us. We have a different loyalty. We have different orders. We have a different set of values. We are heading in different directions. And because of that, we are mutually exclusive from the world. We are in the world, but we are mutually exclusive from it simply because we identify with Jesus. We identify with him. And because of that, the world resents us and persecutes us. But why? Why would anyone hate Jesus? Why would anyone not want to know Jesus? Here is love incarnate. Here is goodness incarnate. Here is someone who heals, who loves, who cares, who brings people back from the dead. Here is someone who does not lie or steal or lust or slander. Why would anyone hate him? Well, we find out in the next verses, verses 22 to 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So why does the world hate Jesus and all he stands for? Well, Jesus gives three reasons here. First of all, it's because he, as the light of the world, exposes their sin. When Jesus arrives, he illuminates all the evil within the darkness. Now, Jesus is not saying that there, if he hadn't come, there would be no sin. The world is already a sinful place because he arri- er, before he arrives on the scene. Ever since the fall, humanity has been committing sin against God. But not until he, Jesus, comes into the world is the world's evil challenged. No one else can challenge the world's evil like Jesus. He's the sinless one. So D.A. Carson can say, Jesus is so pure that dirty men and women must either get cleaned up or else loathe his purity. Jesus is so pure that the world is now robbed of every excuse when confronted by him, the light of the world, and they hate him for it. Secondly, the world is robbed of any excuse because they've seen his good works and yet failed to recognize that he is God. In this gospel, he's turned water into wine, he's healed several people, he's fed the 5,000, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, and these mighty deeds reveal the character and power of God. The world saw them and should have recognized that Jesus was revealing God, but in their eyes, they can't come to terms with God in flesh and they hate him for it. Lastly, the world hates, but it fulfills God's purposes. As stated in Psalm 69, they hated me without a cause. All the hostility toward him and his followers is actually within the purposes of God. That is to say that God's purposes will not be thwarted. They will not be thwarted. God's purposes will be accomplished not only through Jesus' perfection and love, but even despite the world's hate. So three reasons for the world's hatred of Jesus, which then flows over to his disciples. Now at this point, I can imagine the disciples... (laughs) thinking, what are we to do now, Jesus? (laughs) These disciples who are confused, fearful, and anxious, which we've talked about in previous weeks, now are probably feeling hopeless and discouraged. What are we supposed to do, Jesus? Especially since you're leaving us soon. What are we supposed to do? Well, that brings us to the culmination of our passage, verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, that's the paraclete, 
When the paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So after Jesus says these words, I can imagine the disciples saying, yes, of course, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will come to help us. And with the mention of the paraclete, it would bring the disciples' minds, and hopefully our minds as well, Jesus' previous teaching about the paraclete. Jesus has already told us this, that the paraclete will come to be with them and us and in them and us forever. They and us are never alone. And the paraclete will be just like the presence of Jesus, with them and us and in them and us forever because he is another of the same kind. And the paraclete will bring the peace of Jesus to them and us in the midst of the hostility. So how can disciples then and now face confusion, fear, and anxiety in the midst of hatred and persecution with the help of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one called in alongside who is with us and in us permanently? And not only will the presence of the paraclete help us in the midst of hatred and persecution, we find here another primary function of the paraclete. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness to Jesus. Will bear witness about Jesus. The world resists Jesus and resists us. The world rejects Jesus and rejects us. The world hates Jesus and hates us. The world where we live today seems to be so strong against Jesus and us, we wonder how will we ever break through? How will we ever break through all this resistance? Answer? We don't. We don't break through. In fact, we can't break through. But the paraclete can. The paraclete can, and the paraclete does break through. And that's what Jesus really wants us to get in this particular text. The paraclete is present in every situation, whether we are there or not, and he can break through. Jesus wants us to realize as we walk through our daily lives here in the Bay Area, the paraclete is there and he can break through. Yes, we do bear witness, as Jesus says in verse 27. And how do we primary, primarily bear witness? We primarily bear witness by what Jesus commands elsewhere. We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We love those who frustrate us, who don't like us, who even want to harm us. 
We overcome evil with good, as Paul says in Romans. That's our primary witness. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is not our witness. He's emphasizing the paraclete's witness. He, the paraclete, is the one who breaks through all the the resistance, the rejection, the rebellion, and the hate. In any situation, in the home, or the office, or the school, the paraclete is at work. And he's working to testify to the truth of Jesus. What a relief. What freedom. We're not the ones who must break through to the world. That's the work of the paraclete. He is the great evangelist. Yes, we are to bear witness. We are to love and do good, but our witness is joining of forces with him. We join him in his witness. So I think Leslie Newbegin says it best. Newbegin was a missionary to, to the Hindus in Africa for many years, and th- there was great hatred, great persecution there. He says this. He says, it's important to know what is not said here. It is not said that the Spirit will help the disciple to bear witness. It's not said here. It is said elsewhere. It's not said here. That would make the action of disciples primary and that of the Spirit auxiliary. What is said is that the Spirit will bear witness and that secondarily the disciples are witnesses. The gospel repeatedly affirms that it is not the work of men and women, but of God to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus as he truly is. To know Jesus as Lord can never be the work of flesh and blood. It's always a miracle of God's grace. It's never the direct result of even the most impressive proclamation. For no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him or her. He goes on. The Spirit is not the church's auxiliary. The promise here is that the mighty Spirit of God will bear his own witness to the crucified Jesus as the Lord and giver of life. Do you see how this transforms our situations? Long before we show up, long before we say or do anything, the paraclete's already there. The paraclete's already on the job, always, already, at work, doing his thing, quite apart from us. We tend to think that evangelism only happens when we show up. Not so. The great evangelist is already there ahead of us. And the privilege we're given is joining him in his already well on its way task. We are not bringing conviction of faith. He is. And isn't that what we see throughout Acts? We call Acts the Acts of the Apostles. It really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see throughout the book. It's the Spirit that brought about conviction on the day of Pentecost. It's the Spirit who leads Stephen to speak the truth. It's the Spirit who breaks through to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the Spirit who breaks through to Saul. 
and Cornelius and so on and so forth. Acts is, the, is primarily a book about the acts of the Holy Spirit. Long before we come on the scene, the Spirit is already there, bearing witness to Jesus, making Jesus real and attractive to people. This is why my friend Daryl Johnson can explain evangelism this way. Evangelism is listening in on a conversation the Holy Spirit is having with another person. That's evangelism. Listening in on a conversation the Holy Spirit is having with another person and only speaking if the Spirit or that person invites you to. As we go about our days at home or at work or in the classroom or on the bus or on the airplane, this is what's happening all around us. The Spirit is having conversations with us and with others. And when we listen carefully, we can sometimes hear this conversation. And sometimes, given the privilege to enter into the conversation. I think that transforms our days. Yeah, the, the life along the Jesus way can be uncomfortable. Jesus knows it. And out of his great love for us, he prepares us for it. Because we are connected to him, we will get persecuted just like he did. The good news is we have his spirit with us and in us to help us. And we can count on him to bear witness about Jesus all around us. Yes, in the midst of the hostility and uncomfortableness, we love and we do good, but the Spirit is already there and he's working to break through all of that hostility. Amen. Well, I want to close this morning with a reflection. I want to try to make this text become real in our lives with this reflection. So I'm going to ask you, if you're willing, to close your eyes and transport yourself in your mind to where you spend the bulk of your time. Where you spend most of your time throughout the week. Maybe it's your house, or a classroom, or a boardroom, or an office. Maybe a studio, or a construction site, or a restaurant, or an airport. Wherever you spend most of your time, I want you to imagine yourself there right now. And now that you're there, ask yourself what you know to be true about that place. As you look around that place, what is going on? Take in all the data of being there and ask yourself, what's happening around me? Now, as I consider the Gospel of John, I think this Gospel has helped us better understand what is happening in those places. And I can name at least four things that I know to be true in those places. 
Number one, I know that the people we interact with in those places are, like you and me, trying to figure out life, trying to make sense of life. And we've seen this throughout this gospel with the woman at the well and the lame man and the official and the blind man and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and others. They're all trying to make sense of life. Likewise, the people we interact with in our places, for the most part, are trying to make the best of life in light of everything they know at any given moment. Some are moving forward, some are moving backward. Some may be moving backward big time, but everyone, for the most part, is seeking to make sense of their existence. Number two, I know that the great enemies of life are at work in our places and situations. I know that sin, evil, and death are at work in all of these places and situations. We, of course, have seen that throughout this gospel as well. And that is why there is so much frustration and disappointment and confusion and sickness and pain everywhere. And that is also why there is sin and injustice and jealousy and lust and power grabbing and hatred and persecution everywhere. Sin, evil, and death are at work in every place where we work and live. There are powers at work in this world moving against Jesus and, and all his name stands for. Number three, I know that sin, evil, and death do not have the last word. They don't have the last word in any of these places, in any of these situations. Sometimes it appears they do, and sometimes it feels like they do, but things are not always as they appear. They do not have the last word. They are strong foes, no doubt, but they are defeated foes. We saw that, through, we've seen that throughout the gospel with the woman at the well and the lame man and the woman caught in adultery. We saw that at the grave of Lazarus and ultimately we'll see it in Jesus' death resurrection and ascension through that sequence of events jesus has defeated sin evil and death and sits at the throne of the universe he has not abolished sin evil and death yet but one day he will but for now because of that sequence of events the grip of sin is broken the grip of evil is broken and the grip of death is broken. They are defeated foes. They no longer have the last word in any of our situations, in any places where we work and live. And number four, I know from this upper room discourse that we are not alone in any of our situations. We are never alone in any of the places we work and live. There is a presence in all of our situations. There is a person bigger and stronger and wiser and more loving and more just than any other person in our situations. The paraclete is there. The Holy Spirit, who is just like the presence of Jesus, is there in every situation, in every place. And the paraclete is not just there. He is at work there in every situation. He is on the job there in every situation, 
bearing witness to Jesus. You can open your eyes now, and I'm going to invite Dave and the choir back up on stage as I close. This last point, number four, is the great truth from our text today. The Spirit is at work in Jesus' disciples, but he is also at work outside of Jesus' disciples. The paraclete is bearing witness everywhere, not only in us out there, but also in the world out there. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, quite apart from us, is at work out there. This is what I know to be true about every place where we work and live. So in, a, in the midst of a society which resists and rejects and rebels against God, how do we break through all of the resistance, rejection, and rebellion? We do not. We cannot. But the paraclete can. The Holy Spirit can break through, and the Holy Spirit does break through. And that is really good news. Amen. Well, if you would like prayer this morning, there'll be pastors and elders up here to my right, your left, who would love to pray with you. Now receive this benediction. The spirit of the living God is with you and in you. He will never leave you or forsake you. So go from here and begin listening in on the conversations he's having with you and with others. And join him in the conversations by speaking if you are asked by him or by that other person. Amen and go in peace.